Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend and former missionary companion from the England-Manchester Mission, Lou Jarvis. Welcome to the podcast, Lou. Hey, Richard. How are you? Good to be with you today. It's good. to. I never thought we'd be doing a podcast together. I think of missionary um, visits we had in the Manchester, England Mission back in 1980, 81, 82. You were one of the very best missionaries that I looked up to and had this huge heart and helped so many people um, come to Christ through our restored church. And Lou and I are going to talk about a topic we've never talked about on this podcast. It's about um, Lou's career as a business owner um, in Arizona. And Lou has had some of the highest highs and the lowest lows as a business owner. And about a week ago, he opened up to me about some of the regrets he's made as in his career and just how he processes that. And he was pretty open and vulnerable. And I thought there's probably a lot of other men and women that have started businesses or have just had careers that at times they've made decisions that are kind of undoable in the sense they can't go back and redo those decisions and how you play that again and again in your mind. And Lou has made some great decisions and some did not so great decisions. And I thought this would be helpful for any of you out there that just regret decisions you've made, but have to find a way to move on. And they're just kind of not undoable decisions. Um, sin sort of most of the time completely undoable that we can repent and become clean unless our choice has affected somebody else. But financial decisions and career decisions sometimes are kind of undoable. And so Anyway, I just thought we'd have Lou on the podcast to share his insights, and he's kind of courageous and vulnerable. And But Lou is uh, married, has um, four children, eight grandchildren. Lou and Don Jarvis are dear friends. Tell us where you live right now, Lou. Uh, we live in Mesa, Arizona. My wife is an interior designer, and we've... Uh, she, she she gets bored with homes fairly quickly. So anybody that lives in Mesa, if you know anywhere between Gilbert Road and Val Vista Road, between about Main Street and McDowell in Mesa, we've lived in about seven or eight homes in that whole area because about every four years, my wife would get so bored with a home that we would have to we'd have to sell the home and, and get some and get somewhere else where she could start over on some new projects. That's great, and I've seen some of her work online. She does a great job. So let's talk about, you know, one day you got on a plane from Manchester, England and flew back to Arizona, and then you started a business. Tell us about um, just your career and and maybe the first part of this podcast, how by senses your career kind of took off. Yeah, and, and yeah, my, um, I want to start by saying, I mean, for most of my life and all of my life, really, I've been very blessed and very, uh, very lucky with different, you know, with, with all my life. I've raised in a great family, great parents, great siblings, great friends, good high school career, and, and have always, always found um, whatever the word success means to you. I've always felt like I've, I've, I've always found success and I've always been very blessed that way. So, you know, when I was young, I had a paper route and that was successful. And then I played sports and that was successful and went on a mission and felt like that went really well and was successful, find, found the right wife. And uh, I started off right after my mission, right before my mission, I'd actually sold furniture up in Sholo, Arizona. 
And so when I got home, my wife and I, uh, we got married about uh, 11 months after my mission. And uh, I sold furniture up in, in Sholo, Arizona. And then uh, we wanted to move down to the valley. So I interviewed and got a job with the Lazy Boy Showcase Shops is what they were called. And so in, uh, in uh, January of 84, um, I became a sales guy for, uh, for this company. And over the next two and a half years, they had, there were only seven, I think there's 17 to 20 of us, but I'd always been real blessed and been at the very top of the leaderboard every month and sold a lot of lazy boys and loved it. And it was, it was real re- rewarding. And the only thing that was wrong with that is it did require me to work a little bit on Sundays. And so I, I was, by 1986, I was looking for something different. And my old, my old bishop growing up was a gentleman named Buck Smith that owned a wood molding mill in Snowflake, Arizona. And he and I, he, I would always go check out, he had all the old cassette tapes, the Earl Nightingales and the Zig Ziglers and, and um, the Norman Vincent Pills and all those uh, positive motivational tapes. And so I would go check out the tapes at his house and then we would talk about business. And then he decided, he said, I would love to open up a wholesale molding company. He manufactured it up in Snowflake. And then he wanted to open a wholesale molding company in the Valley. And so him and his brother came and approached me in uh, May of 1986 and said, how about we open up a wholesale molding company? We'll distribute the molding that we make in Snowflake. And uh, we'll, you'll, be the, you'll be the manager. And if you stay three years and it's successful, then we'll give you some ownership in the business. So I was 24, had chosen not to go to college of my own fruition. I just didn't have the, I had too much ADD to sit in class and, and, and pursue that for so many years. So I knew my path was going to be in business and sales and in the, something to do with human relationships. And, and that would be my skill set. And so May of 86, we started Smith Molding Wholesale. And uh, we did that for 22 years from uh, May of 1986 until we sold out to a Canadian company in March of 2008, right before the big crash. So that's, that was the, that was the, that was all the success, Richard, from, from, from my child, from my paper out at age 12 to age 46, everything went fairly, went fairly smooth up until that point. And when you sold that business, were you, um, was it successful sell in the sense you were financially pleased with the deal? It was not here again. This is one of the, this would be maybe the beginning of the, oh, the decisions that we didn't make that could have made a difference. This Canadian company wanted to buy Smith Molding in, in 2006. And um, I did not have enough ownership to force a sale. I didn't have the majority. But this company offered us uh, in excess of $20 million, and we had less than um, $3 million in debt. So it, was, it would have been a phenomenal deal. But in 2006, the economy was still really good. Things were going good. Five of the six kids of my partner uh, were employed by the business. So, you know, they were like, why, why would we sell it? And then 2008 came and our business completely, uh, home building completely stopped in Arizona. And miraculously, this company from Canada still wanted to buy it. So we sold it, but we sold it for less than $10 million, and we owed almost $8 million. So we went from netting almost $20 million to netting $2 million. So I say we sold it, 
but had we not made that deal six months later, we probably would have uh, been bankrupt. And I and my ownership was uh, was 10% of that. So I walked away with a couple hundred thousand dollars after 22 years. So it was not, it was better than filing bankruptcy, which a lot of people were doing in 2008, but it wasn't near what we could have or should have done had we sold in 2006. That's pretty honest. And that's a big difference. That two-year swing, um, I think a lot of our listeners, maybe some of you are from the Arizona area. I just remember how hard Arizona was hit with the housing crisis in 2008 and how brutal that was for so many um, really wonderful people in Arizona. And so yeah. that's we, tough. We literally went from in uh, in 2007, August of 2007, we did $4 million in sales. And in October of 2007, two months later, we did $1.6 million. I mean, it just dropped. It just it completely went. We lost 50% of our business. And we didn't lose a single customer. The, the building just stopped in the middle of 2007. And housing permits went from 7,000 new permits a month, literally down to 1,300 a month when we sold. But then the, the company that bought us out of Canada, eight months later, housing starts dropped all the way down to an average of 192 a month for the next two years. So it got even, it got way more miserable after we sold it. So it was just, yeah, it was a horrible time. And we felt grateful that we sold it all, but that was the beginning of kind of going, oh, if we would have only made that, if I, if I would have been more bold and helped get that business sold two years earlier, I wish I'd have been more persuasive and more, um, you know, more, 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 more bold about it. But, but, uh, but it wasn't awful. We didn't, we didn't feel, we didn't feel bad. And to share with our listeners, so that's roughly 12 years ago. Um, yeah. You've got obviously some money in the bank and, um, a home that um, I assume you've got some equity in, so you're not in a terrible situation, but you're in a situation, you're in your 40s, early 40s, I think. Um, 46, so you, yeah, I was 46 at the time, yeah. So you've got to work. Um, tell our listeners just what happened next. Well, see, and this, and this, and this is the first, uh, what I would say, mistake I made that I look back on and go, oh, if only. And we'll get into that and talk about all the ramifications, what that means. But let's get, let's definitely get the whole scenario out on the table, and then talk about what lessons I'm, I'm trying to learn, and what I, lessons I feel like I still have to learn. But, but when we sold the company, the company that bought us was insistent that I stay on board, and so I, instead of being the CEO of Smith Molding, I was now the branch manager of the Phoenix branch of this Canadian company. And I had a very generous salary and a very generous um, bonus program that was really nice into the six-figure range, that 200 to 250,000 a year range. And this is March of 2008. Now, the world hadn't gotten really scary until September of 2008, but in March of 2008, um, they wanted me to stay on, and I had a two-year contract at around 250000 a year for two years that was guaranteed unless I committed a felony of some sort. So, but I was miserable. I'd, I'd only worked for myself for 22 years. And two months into this contract, I just, I hated it. And so I, I had a boss now that I'd never really had. And they were not, I was very customer service oriented. And I'll give you, well, I'm just going to give you one really quick story, but this gentleman had uh, what our largest customer that was still left 
had lost his son to a drug overdose. And the following week, he called me and said, I'm having a really bad day. Is there any chance we can go out later this afternoon and, and, uh, and go hit around the golf? I've just got to get away. And uh, I, I made a tea time for like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It was the latest I could do it and still get in before it went dark. And I went into my new boss, who's the regional manager, and said, hey, you know this gentleman. He lost his son. He's our largest customer. He's having a bad day. Do you mind? I'm, I'm going to go take him golfing. It's good for business, but it's good for his personal life. We've been friends for 20 years, et cetera. And he just railed on me. He just went crazy and said, no, that's not what we do. You have employees here. Your job is to be here till 5 p.m. You have salesmen here, inside sales guys. If you leave here at 2 o'clock, they just see you lollygagging around, get to go play golf, and they're here till 5 o'clock. You have to stay here till 5 and work. And, and it was so foreign to how I operated business. I was all relationship-oriented, and here's this guy that needed help, and and they didn't want to let me go. And so I had three or four instances like that where I'm just like, man, this is just not me. And so my daughter, who at the time was uh, in her uh, early 20s, she was kind of playing life coach for me at the time. She's like, Dad, you don't, you don't have to do this. You don't deserve this. You, Something better is going to come along. You need to get out of there. And so in May of, uh, May of 2008, like two or three months into my contract, I just quit. Because I had made, like I said, two or 300000 on the sale. Um, I had a lot of equity in the house. I, had, I actually had a lot of money in a Merle Lynch bank account, about a half a million dollars in just a regular Merle Lynch bank account and, and equity in the house and everything else and had just put some money in the bank. And so I, 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 felt, I felt on top, you know, I felt like I didn't need to put up with, with the stuff I was putting up with at work. And so I, I quit that job. And that's one of those things. That's one of, that's the first thing, Richard, that I just play over and over and over in my head is my gosh, if I'd have stayed, if I'd have just sucked it up and done whatever they told me to do, that was a $250,000 a year job. That's a half a million dollars worth of income from 2008, March of 2008 to March of 2010. That was guaranteed that, wow, I wish, I wish I, I wish I had stayed because then I would have seen how scary the world would have got. And instead, I didn't have that half a million dollars of the income, and I uh, struggled to to find something meaningful to do after that, which is the next step. That's honest, um, and that's a big change to go from sort of being your own man, an owner of a company, to having somebody come in and be um, reporting to somebody. I've heard a lot of stories of business owners, men and women that sell their businesses, and rightly so, the new owner wants them to stay on board because of the relationship they have with the clients, but then sometimes that doesn't work. And so that door closed. So that's, and at the time when that door closed, I would assume that you were pretty hopeful about what you do next. So share, keep telling your story. Right. I, so I felt I felt pretty confident, and um, and I decided to take just I, at the time I I, I gained a, I gained a lot of weight, and so I had a friend that had a cabin actually in McCall, Idaho, Idaho, and said, hey, we're not using this cabin. Why don't you go get yourself into some shape and and go take care of yourself? So I actually took about four months, and we went to McCall, Idaho, and we lived in this beautiful cabin. My uh, son, that's 21 now, did fourth grade, did one semester of fourth grade, and I lost some weight and I got myself uh, healthy mentally. I felt like and and um, and I came back and I the, the the foreclosure business was super huge in 2009, 
uh, everybody was losing their homes. And so actually I landed a really good um, uh, gig with some two friends that were buying foreclosure homes. And so um, they gave me a really nice salary and I helped them go down and buy homes at the uh, auctions. And then I still had lots of friends. The neighborhood I was living in had lots of doctors and attorneys and orthodontists and lots of people that incomes weren't greatly affected in the downturn, that it was a great time housing, literally. Homes in this one area, just this one neighborhood, what used to be 250000 were now selling at the auctions for like sixty and $80,000. So we'd go down and buy them at the auctions, and then um, and then uh, and then I would resell them to some of my friends that were doctors and attorneys and orthodontists and such. And that was kind of good for 2009. So 2009, I was I was okay. And then I got the wild hair that I really had always wanted to do something big, and I wanted to do something out of state. And so in 2010. I had a friend that had bought a franchise, the master franchise rights for a company um, that was in the commercial cleaning business. And he bought in Arizona and he was doing fairly well with his commercial cleaning business. And so um, I started looking into it, it was based out of Texas and I got the wild hair to uh, Orange County was open and I could buy Orange County for $365,000. And so I got the wild hair that I was gonna buy Orange County and me and my son-in-law, my daughter just got married. We were going to go knock it out of the park in California. So that's the second mistake. The first mistake was not staying at the new company, at, at the company that bought me out. I should have stayed the two years there. The second mistake was in 2010. I, 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 I say I felt inspired, and I did, but I wanted it so bad, I was going to find ways to make the inspiration go through. So... That's a whole. That's probably a whole podcast in itself, Richard. But, but I, I, I wanted to go there. I really wanted to try this. I wanted to go do this. And so I bought the, uh, the franchise rights to Orange County, and uh, and we moved over to Orange County and took my son-in-law, and we plunked down three hundred sixty-five thousand to buy this territory. And it, when I think back on it, what in the world? This was uh, like March, April of two thousand ten. And we're going into California, which the only economy worse than Arizona was probably either California, Nevada, or Florida. We were the four worst states in the union. So, but we bought this franchise and we went over there and our expenses between my son-in-law and I to live there and then run the business, have a little office building was about 20,000, 17 to 20,000 a month between living expenses and and the business and we did that from march or april all the way till december of 2010 so we were only there nine or ten months but it was just a disaster um orange county at that time you have some wealthy cities like newport beach and costa mesa that had buildings this was a commercial cleaning company and there were buildings that needed to be cleaned but what you also didn't realize, or I didn't realize, is that in Orange County, you also have Anaheim and uh, uh, Santa Ana, which are two cities with a, a, a very large Hispanic population that are very great people and very entrepreneurial. And 
a lot of ownerships in in uh, in cleaning companies, and so we would go to try to get a uh, take a building, and they would say, well, this great family, husband and wife team, have been cleaning our building for 14 years, and now it's 2010. It's a horrible economy. They've already agreed to. They've already reduced their price by 300 a month to clean the building, and if you were going to take it from them, you'd have to be another three, four, three or four hundred below them. And there was no money in it if we did that. And it just a long, a really long story short, from March till uh, December, I lost. We we spent another two hundred thousand dollars. So we were almost five and five hundred fifty thousand in cash that had just just was gone, and it was not successful. And that was so hard on me mentally because I had never failed at anything. Like say, go back to my childhood. I had a great paper route. I had a great sports career. I sold furniture before my mission and was, I had all these letters written to my, the owner of the furniture store saying what a great guy I was and a good mission, a good sold furniture after my mission, a great 22 year career at Smith Molding. We were profitable from the third month all the way till the time we sold, almost till the time we sold. So I'd seen nothing but success. And then here I am, wow. December of 2010, and I'd lost 550000 in cash in 10 months. Wow. And we leased out my home, but when we left, my, my home in Mesa uh, had been worth probably 1.1, 1.2 million. And we had a $479,000 mortgage on it. When I came back to take it over, it was maybe worth 450,000. So oh my goodness. I came back to, I'd, I'd lost all the equity in my house. I had had somebody at least make the payment for the two years that we, uh, we, we leased out for two years. It's, there's a little bit of a story there that doesn't need to be told, but one, one year we had, we had, moved out to a different place. But anyway, that's a story that doesn't apply. So anyway, long story short, we, we, when we came back to that house, we, we, we came back to Mesa, but we, but we had no equity in the home and we'd lost $550,000. And in the meantime, we had also purchased in 2007, we went to buy some land in Safford, Arizona, and we developed it we put some money into it, but we hadn't had to go all in. We, we had a deferred closing. And at the same time, Richard, we either had, we were going to lose all the money that we put into developing this land. Our partner had backed out and then we had to make a choice whether to take all our savings. We still had about 400,000 in the bank at Merle Lynch. And that's how much more we owed on the land. We were either going to lose about 250,000 that we put into this project in Safford we were either going to lose that or we were going to have to go all in and take all our savings. And at the time, it felt right to not lose that. So we put everything that we had inside this Merle Lynch fund into this land in Safford. Now, the good news is we still own a piece of land in Safford. It's not, we, we've got 650000 into it, and it's worth maybe 300000 today. But, that's, <laughs> but so, we, by, so the culmination of the bad stuff was by by when we came back, Chris. I sent my family back Christmas of uh, of 2010, and for all intents and purposes, we had lost all our cash, or what cash we did have was now tied up in a piece of land in Safford that wasn't going to be worth 
anything for years to come, but we figured at some point it would come back and be worth something. But we, we but we physically lost over half a million dollars in our California adventure. Wow. Um, thanks for being so honest, even with the numbers. Um, I you, you probably cringe every time you communicate those numbers out loud. Um, it just and here you are with your son-in-law that looks up to you and sees a successful right. businessman that you know has raised a wonderful daughter, and he's you know you've got sort of that equation as yeah. part of it of you're going to go do this together and. Just it seems like all every angle, could the equity on your home back in Arizona, this deal, um, the economy, so many things out of your control as you're trying to make the right choices. And, and right. then by the end of 2010, it's just like, I think it's pretty honest. I've had some people say to me later in life in their 50s, um, this is the first time I've failed at something. Um, right. And I've never... I've sort of never failed at something and it's just a whole new experience for me. Yeah. And that's an important, Richard, I, I really want to, I really want to share an experience because I, I, I kind of, you know, overall the theme I want people to learn from my experience and how to handle defeat and some bad things that happen. But I, this is a very important lesson that I, I did uh, learn along the way. So I, I want to share this experience. Um, December 2010, I sent my family back to Arizona. Um, we actually ended up having to live with a, a family that had some extra room until our um, home that we no longer had equity in, but we could at least move back into wasn't ready till March. But in December, I sent my family back. It was right before Christmas. There's this empty, so if you can picture just this empty little rental in uh, Irvine, California. Um, little thousand square foot, three bedroom, two bath. It costs us twenty four hundred a month to lease, and it's empty. I sent everything back. I made the phone call to my CPA, who did not want me to make the move in the first place. But like I said, I felt like we were inspired to do it. Anyway, I called him on the phone. I told him, Hey Kim, it didn't work. Uh, I'm out of money. It costs more than we did here. We didn't have any success. We weren't able to pick up any buildings. I've worked. 14-hour days for eight months, and it 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 failed. It just failed. I I don't know what to tell you. And he had no compassion on me. He just said, "I told you, you're an idiot. Why did you waste it? You had all this security. You had all. You should have stayed at Smith Mobile. You should have stayed with that company. You lost that half a million dollars, and now you blew and you wasted another half a million dollars. Blah blah blah." And he was just really mad. And he just really. And I've known this guy for. 30 years, so I'm not mad at him. He, he was our CPA for 22 years at Smith Mullins, so he felt like he could treat me like a dad that was disgusted at one of his kids. But he, he really let me have it. He said, you, you, you blew it. You've wasted all your financial security, blah, blah, blah. And I hung up the phone, Richard, and I still get emotional thinking about it. I literally, empty little, empty, empty little um, apartment or little house there in Irvine, I got off the phone, I started to walk towards the front door and I just collapsed on the on the carpet there in that room. And I just started just sobbing, just crying like a baby. I felt stupid. I felt betrayed by Heavenly Father that I felt inspired to do this and then it failed. Why would you why would you cause me to go through this? I didn't want to go back to Arizona and face my wife and my kids, my adult kids. 
I didn't want to, like you said, I was embarrassed. I had my son-in-law come all the way to California. We spent eight months there. I couldn't, we couldn't make it work. Uh, I didn't know, I had zero idea what I was going to do for employment. I'm going to go live with a family. I'm going to have to go live in a, uh, you know, a bedroom of a house while, while we went. And, and, and Richard, I, I laid there and cried for an hour until I couldn't cry anymore. And until I felt the most unbelievable, one of the most powerful spiritual experiences of my life, where after about an hour of laying there, just crying, curled up in a ball, and I really, for the first time in my life, felt two things. I felt my Savior's love like I've never felt before. I felt his embrace, and I felt his... Um, compassion and love towards me and felt the, I felt that I knew everything was going to be okay. And I knew that he loved me and he was there for me. But I also felt the distinct feeling came over me of, Hey, you need to go, you need to go through this experience because you need to learn how to have empathy and really feel what it's like for a lot of my children and this was kind of the words I felt my Savior, my Heavenly Father telling me is, you need to feel what it feels like to lose, to not have things go your way. You, I've blessed you your whole life. And I want you to feel what it feels like to be despondent and so that you'll have more compassion and you'll have more empathy towards your fellow man and towards people that you serve here on out. And that last five minutes of that experience where I felt the Savior's love and I felt this need to really learn empathy towards others, um, that, was, that, was, that was a $550,000 lesson, Richard. That's, 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 why, that's why I had to go through that. And so for all the tough stuff that I've been through, I know that experience that I went through um, and I don't even know if I plan on sharing that as part of our podcast, but that's a beautiful segment. that was a very that was very powerful to me, and that was something I needed to learn. That's a beautiful segment, my friend. I'm just I'm just sort of in your Irvine apartment at Christmas time alone with you, and just imagining what that felt yeah. like as a dad, as a father, as a provider. Yeah five decades of success and just the darkness you faced in that moment and the uncertainty of the future and the knowing you can't undo this, this is over. Um, and you're facing, right. you know, living temporarily, not even in your own house that's lost all its right. equity and not knowing what you're going to do in the future and your wife and your family and your community that you left and kind of on cloud nine and now you're coming back, you know, and, just all that darkness around you and the love of our Savior for you in that really dark moment. Wow. Yeah. It was powerful. Uh, it was it was really powerful. And it didn't prevent me from having some dark days for the next couple of years where I still, even today, sometimes have these regrets of how could you, 
how could you, you know, how could you have been so stupid? Why did you, you know, what, what were you thinking going to California in 2010 when the economy was horrible and trying to find a bunch of people to clean the buildings for when half the buildings were vacant at the time? You know, so sometimes I still revert back and beat myself up about that. But if I, if I go back and remember that experience, then I go, wait a minute. You you were you were you were very well loved by your savior at that moment and you needed that experience and that was part of your refiner's fire to learn to be and not and not you you know me, Richard. I've never it wasn't that Heavenly Father was trying to say, Look, you've been an arrogant SOB your whole life and I need to humble you because I'd never I'd never been that way. But I had only seen everything that I do be successful. And I'd always listen to Zig Ziglar tapes and stuff about, you know, the difference, you know, is, is how you handle the negative situations of life. The difference between the winners and the losers is how you handle the negative situations. And I would always preach that my whole time at Smith Molding. Hey, if we have a down day or a bad month or whatever, Hey, this is, we got to be positive and pick ourselves up. And how do we rectify this? And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I had something really genuinely hard happen where you lose everything and all of a sudden I found out so let's move on to the next chapter of that so then I come back to Arizona I was very fortunate that the people that I had worked with in 2009 doing the real estate stuff they heard I was coming back and they generously said it's January of 2011 and there were still a lot of foreclosure homes and they had a bunch of leads from people wanting to buy homes in Arizona. They didn't have to, they didn't have time to, to do. So I was able to um, work with them and they uh, agreed. I said, look, they said, we'll split commissions with you. We'll give you leads and we'll split commissions. And I said, look, I am so beat up right now. Um, and this is probably a bad mistake, but it, but it, but it, but I don't regret this one at all. I said, look, my bills are seven grand a month. I just want, I'll, I'll work my backside off for you guys. I just want seven grand a month to pay my bills. I don't want to, I don't want to be on a commission. If, if you think we can do more, great. You guys make the extra. Just give me seven grand a month and I want to show up every day and I want to work hard, but I don't want to, I, I can't, I, don't, I can't do it. And so, so they agreed here's seven grand a month, January, 2011. By March or April of 2011, they'd given me a lead to a group of people in in Orem, Utah, who I'm so I, who I still do business with, and we st- they had a group of investors all over the country that wanted to buy homes in Arizona. We became their we became their um, company of choice to buy homes at auctions for, and we received a three thousand dollar fee within a few just a couple of short months we were buying about 15 homes a month for them that I was personally involved in. So I was, we were bringing in about $45,000 in commissions that I could have been splitting with these guys. And I just was so happy just to have my seven grand a month and not worry about, I could pay my bills and I was happy as a camper, but that's, that's what I did when I came back in, in 2011. And I did have one experience during that time. So about February, March, April, I was sitting there and I was feeling really kind of depressed that I'd lost all this money in California. That sacred experience I had was no longer in my forefront and I was more angry or not angry, but just really going, I can't, 
believe I'm in the situation where I, I've lost everything and I'm just trying to get back on my feet. And in comes this gentleman, I won't tell you his name. He sent, uh, uh, anyway, this guy came in, he's about eight or 10 years older than me. He's probably his late fifties. And I know he lost a ton of money, uh, in from 2008 to 2011. This is like April, 2011. And he comes in and he uh, rounded up some investors and bought a, a foreclosure home and he was bringing his check in. And I saw him through the, I was in the little conference room. I didn't even have an office in this place. I just sat in the conference room. And, but I called him in. I said, hey, come in here. And I said, dude, I know you've lost like a ton of money in the last three years. You've like lost everything. And I said, but you're like, I've seen you in here three or four times and you're bouncing around like happy as happy as can be. What, why, why are you happy? I, I'd be miserable. You lost everything. And he said, and so he said, tell me your story. So I told my sad story of losing everything in California and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay. And he goes, and what other problems do you have? And I still, I had a few debts that I had from this, uh, from this venture and stuff. And he, he looked at me, he goes, well, how's your health? And I go, my health's great. I'm doing great. And he goes, Lou, what are you worried about? He goes, money problems they'll sort themselves out. Whatever, whatever debt you got, they'll, they'll work themselves out over the next year or two. Don't worry about it. Credit card debt, you didn't have, it'll figure itself out. You, you'll pay it off. You'll find a way. Don't worry about it. Don't stress. He goes, your health is good, right? I go, yep. He goes, as long as you have your health, Lou, look me in the eye. As long as you have your health, life is great. And I was like, wow, that's really profound. And less than a year later, this gentleman ended up having uh, uh brain cancer and he and he passed away wow. and uh but yeah but i i'll never i'll never forget him i, I mean he was he, he gave me a, a real profound deal that hey as long as you have your health you've got everything and so and i know that's kind of a cliche but um anyway that i, I kind of got off point there richard help that's bring me good. back on this <laughs> talk about bring us up to speed over these last eight years of have you ever kind of gotten back to where you were financially or do you feel like that's just not going to happen? Are you okay now? Or have you made some good decisions and some bad decisions? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So from, and, and the answer is kind of yes and no. And I guess it depends on how you look at it. On the one hand, from two, I, I, I've always been grateful that I've always been able to pay my bills and I've always been able to put food on the table and I've never, I've never really, I've never got to the point where I've had to have any church assistance or any help that way or whatever. I've always been able to pay my bills. And from 2011, I got that $7,000 a month salary for about eight months. And then they said, look, this is ridiculous. You're worth more than this. Let's figure it out. Let's let's get some bonuses and some commissions and let's figure it out. And so these two guys were awesome uh, that I worked with. And, um, and so, so I got a little bit more money from them and, uh, I ended up, my home went up just a little bit in value where I was able to sell it and get out of that $479,000 mortgage and a $3,000 a month, uh, house payment. And I was able to get, $40,000 worth of equity. I had no credit. I had a really kind friend that qualified for a, a smaller home for us. And we bought a smaller home, putting our $40,000 down, but his, his uh, credit to, to get the, to get the mortgage. And, uh, we had, we reduced our house payment by a thousand a month and had a couple thousand dollars a month house payment. So from 2012 to 2016, 
we did real estate and we and we did we did really well and I felt comfortable and I felt happy with things and then I had one more hiccup which was good and bad and I still haven't quite processed all the way through this but I got the opportunity to go to Vegas a friend of mine became the CFO of a internet marketing company and I won't give all the details to it but anyway 2017 and half of 2018 I became the director of sales for a company in Vegas and did really well financially, but I didn't have anything to write off anything against at all. And I did, I paid a lot of taxes and I did have one, I had one debt in 2014. I did one fix and flip home. Uh, I did about 40 or 50 fix and flip homes from 2012 to 2016. Everyone was pretty good, made a little bit of money, paid our bills, and I had one really bad deal that I couldn't pay a contractor on, and he was a super kind guy, and he said, whenever you make some money, you'll pay me back then, and that, it, during that 2017 year, um, I made some good money. I was able to settle uh, my debt with him and pay him back, but I paid a bunch of taxes, and I, and I, I here again, I feel a little bad at this. I, I almost feel stupid saying it out loud, but it was the first, 2017 all of a sudden felt like 2004 again, where it was the first time in 10 years I was able to breathe financially. And instead of saving like I should have, Richard, I felt so grateful that I had a little bit of money and I could breathe that I went back to my 2004 lifestyle when things were good and I lightened up a little bit. And my, Don and I traveled back to England and we flew business class instead of coach. And I spent an extra couple thousand dollars there. And I, you know what I mean? I just let it slide. And it was, it felt so rewarding that I, I, I could go back to what I considered my old self where I wasn't frivolous, but I didn't, I didn't have to, I didn't have to pinch every penny to try to make it. And anyway, that ended that ended in the middle of 2018, and and since then, from 2018 uh, May of 2018 till now, I've been back doing uh, real estate again and helping investors buy investment properties in Arizona, uh, buying and selling properties. Um, I've got a good group of people out of Seattle that have bought a bunch of multifamily stuff, and so I'm paying the bills now. But here's here's what I wonder whether your listeners will appreciate what I'm going through. For the last year and a half, I've lived in Mesa most of my life. And so this for 30 years, I've lived in and around Mesa, 30, 35 years, Mesa Gilbert. And there's probably 50 to 80 to 100 guys in various wards that are my friends. Not, not super close friends, but we play basketball together. We play softball together. They know me. I know them. And... Everybody knows Lou Jarvis. He's a good dude. He's fun to be around, kind. He'll be a good, you know what I mean? So I have a lot of acquaintances and a lot of good friends. But I used to be, when we were in our 30s, I was, I, I mean, how did I say this without sounding cocky? But at that point, my, I started at 24 at Smith Molding. By the time I was 34, man, I was doing, I was doing phenomenal. Better than, better than most of these other guys. They were just getting their careers off the ground as an attorney or they just started businesses in their early 30s and I'd been fortunate to start in my 20s. So in our 30s, 
we'd go play basketball and afterwards we'd all go to get a, a, a thirst buster and I had my company credit card that I I could buy 10, 10 thirst busters for everybody and I, w- I was the life of the party and I had them at, at 34 I was the one that had a little, a little extra change in my pocket and and here's where I really struggled is now I'm I'm 58 and from from the time I came back January 2011 completely broke I have made a decent living that whole time. I had the one really good year in 2017, but I've made enough money to always pay the bills, have a little bit of a vacation, but I never went back and started another business. I never, I never took advantage of, I don't know, I just didn't, it didn't happen. And what I find myself doing, I'm totally content with who I am if I don't run into and, and this is the problem. I run into these people all the time, but I'm fine until I go to lunch and I run into a guy that was my old neighbor when we were uh, when uh, when we were in our 30s, and I was doing well, and they weren't doing well. And now at 58, I'm going to work till I'm 70 probably at least. And I know his businesses have just exploded since 2011. And they're living on Easy Street. I went on a bike ride with one of my friends the other day. We've been great friends for 30 years. He served in the England Manchester Mission before us, Richard. But just the other day, I was with him. We were on a little bike ride, and I hadn't really asked him about his finances. But he was he was saying, uh, and 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 in our 30s, he lost everything. It's a long story. We had bad economy here, 88 to 92, and he lost everything. He was completely unemployed. And I, Smith Molding was doing great. Um, I remember when he first became a home builder and I encouraged him to get out there and he had nothing. And now he's very wealthy. And we were on this bike ride and he says, hey, Lou, you know, the other day I, my wife said, go count our cash. And anyway, he went and counted his cash. He has this enormous amount of cash just in his, in his uh, safe at home. And I went home and instead of being happy for him, I was so dep- I was so triggered by uh, once again being around a friend that I used to have as much or more than they did, and now they have, they're financially secure, and I'm not. And I don't know how I don't I don't know how to That's I don't honest. know how to make I don't know how to make people understand what I'm trying to say, Richard. But I get triggered all the time. Triggered's a good by word. By people. Is, is that the right word? Is that a good word to use? I triggered? think that's, that's a good I word. I feel triggered. I... I'm totally content until I see somebody at lunch, and then I'm triggered that I always think, oh, I used to be better off than you, and now you're way better than me. And I, that's not in a derogatory way. I'm not mad at them. They didn't do anything wrong. I'm just sad. I leave, and then I go to try to sell a home, which is an honorable profession. I go do my honest job to make enough money to pay my bills the next month or the month after that. But instead of being grateful and content that I have a couple things in escrow, I all I can think about is that son of a gun has his house paid off. He's got a few hundred thousand in the bank or a couple million in the bank. He doesn't have to work anymore. He's got his retirement all set. He's going to retire in two years. And I'm sitting there going, I, I blew it. And then I, so then I start beating myself up. Then I go, God, I'm as smart as that guy. I I used to run a business twice his size, and I'm smarter than that guy. And now look at him. He's financially secure. He's got money in the bank. His house is paid off. And I'm 58. I'm embarrassed. I have enough money to pay my bills for a few months. 
I have no savings, I have no retirement, I have no, and, and, and then I just get triggered. And then I'm just, and then I beat myself up and then I start ruminating about why the blank were you so stupid to go to California? Why were you so stupid to quit a job that was paying you 250 grand a year? Why were you so stupid to do? And then you had that one opportunity in 2017, you didn't save any money, you blew that. You don't you you're, you don't deserve you don't deserve money because you're not good with it. You're not a good steward and blah blah blah. And I, I go down this rabbit hole and the next thing I know, my wife is picking me up off the bedroom floor because I'm I'm uh, I'm despondent. I'm I'm going, how did I get here? And yet I I'm so blessed. I, if I, if I, Richard, if I could move somewhere where nobody knew me and I had no history and I wasn't going to get triggered by anybody, That's interesting. and I lived in uh, Colorado and I was making the same amount of money living in the same house, but I never got triggered and no, nobody knew my past and nobody ever knew that I at one point had a little bit of money, I would be, I would be great. I would feel very grateful and content with who I am, but because I'm around this same environment where I did have something and now I don't as much and I'm around all these people that trigger me, not their fault again, is really um it's really a dichotomy and it, and it's hard for me because I want to be grateful and I want to be thankful and I am grateful and I am thankful. But at the same time You get triggered. Holy cow. I can't quit ruminating about the coulda, shoulda, woulda, which I know is completely unproductive, Richard. I know that doesn't do it doesn't do anybody any good. Easier, easier said than done, though. It's really a challenge. Uh, it's just so honest of you, Lou, and my love for you and my respect for you, someone I've known my whole life, only goes up hearing this story because um, I know what a good man you are, a good heart you are, how hard you worked, how much you care about Don, your kids and your grandkids. And it's just so honest of you. And, you know, I, there's no platit, there's no short answers any of our listeners or me can say. We're just, I think, oh, we're right. just grateful you're willing to share the story because I think you willing right. to share it maybe helps you a little bit. But it also, there's a lot of people listening that I think do the same things. It may be a bad driving decision where in a moment of carelessness, something really bad happened. There's a lot of right. really when we, there's no sin involved here. There was no sin involved in right. a lot of the things that come into our lives that aren't sin related, that cause tremendous pain for us and others. And those right. are really complex. And some of those you can't undo just like if, you know, I hit a neighbor kid in my neighborhood in the car or something. And, and I just think it's, a long journey to sort of um, work through that. I, I hope none of us are like your accountant. I hope that when you open up, that we all know that you have thought about every bet part of this bad decision, and we don't need to be your accountant and remind you. It may right. be um, relieving for us if we play that role, or it may be elevates us, or I told you so, but usually the people that or opening up don't need that. They need us to listen and empathize because they have everything we're going to point out to them. They thought through a hundred times and it just adds to the burden. Um, right. And I think um, it's just so honest of you. I'm one of the things I'll share something that's not too dramatic, but it's in the same category. 
I have, you know, in school, we were always taught to put money in the stock market. And I've seen this, my money in the stock markets, not a lot of money go down two times. One that one, and you've mentioned both of these time frames, 1988 right. through 92 and 2008. And both of those times it went down, it took a long time to recover. So as right. our listeners know, the stock market went down in 2020. We're recording this in August, but one Monday morning in March, I got so frustrated with all the money I was losing in the stock market, I just made the decision I'm selling it all and and moving everything I have in my retirement. And obviously, I have a retirement. A lot of listeners don't, and it sounds like you are not in that position either. So I recognize I'm in a good... But I just I emailed my, my guy, and I for the first time in my life, I said, I'm just out of the stock market. I'm done with these big, huge dips that take days and that take right. months, years and years to recover. And so I right. sold everything, turned it to cash, and I wrote down the Dow number that day. That day is March 23rd. The Dow that day was at 18,500. It ended up being, as some of our listeners may know, the very lowest point of the Dow. Um, right. It went up, and I think I lost 40%. And and I haven't gotten back in because I don't know how to get back in at this point. I don't want to make two bad decisions. So I, right. <laughs> you know, because sometimes we make one bad decision and we want to fix. So and, I've, I've looked at some, right. I've looked at some stocks with a little bit of money I have still in my retirement. I thought, well, I'll just play risk, real risky now and try to make up everything right. I've lost. And I've thought, well, I'm not going to make two bad decisions. Um, right. And so, but I've, I ruminate on that, and yeah, I kick but myself. It's a decision you can't go back and change. I, I mean, the right decision was to stay in at eighteen thousand, and now it's back at twenty-four, twenty-five. Yeah, it's been a fine. Crazy number. But once it's made, it's made, and you can't do anything about it. And it's hard. It's hard not to ruminate about it. We're as men. I feel like and I'm not trying to be generic or sexist about it, but I always felt like it's my responsibility to take care of my family and to financially keep us sound and secure. And when you get in a situation where you're not doing as well at that, even in your situation where you lose some of your safety and security for your future, not all, but some of it, yeah. it's, it's hard not to beat yourself up or hard not to ruminate about that decision and, and not complicate it, right? It is. And, and sometimes we have what some of our some of our friends have taught me the word, the prosperity gospels, sort of this idea that if we pay tithing and we serve and we do everything that, you know, Heavenly Father is going to bless us with pros financial prosperity. And some of our members right. of our church believe very strongly there's a financial, there's a financial blessings yeah. tied in with living the law of tithing. And I'm uncomfortable yeah. with that. I've, I'm very comfortable that there's spiritual blessings tied in with right. living the law of tithing and our family right. has been incredibly spiritually best and we do have financial stability but there's been a lot of people that I have seen that are faithful members of our church that have paid tithing and have gone through incredible financial hardships and that prosperity yeah. gospel and if you if you somehow I don't think it's our doctrine <laughs> it might be part right. of our culture but if you if you believe that then if you're in Irvine, California, on the floor, you think God doesn't love me, or yeah. what have I done wrong, yeah. or 
I lose my Absolutely, testimony in the I church. I paid my tithing through all of that. Yeah, yeah how you, could I lose everything? You've been a 40-year tithe payer. I paid my faithful 10%, and then I lost it. You would lose your faith. If you subscribe to that, then you'll lose your testimony over that, right? Yeah, so I don't know. You know, I just think that's an important part of this conversation. I do think that's important, yeah. yeah. And it sounds like and, and, you didn't and, lose your testimony. And Richard, the, big, <laughs> the, the biggest thing I want to make sure that— from my story and the reason I wanted to be so honest and open about it and whatever is two things. Number one, I'm still, I'm still challenged by it. I feel very blessed, but I still get, I still get triggered. I still, um, uh, I still, I still get triggered once in a while, but I wanted to be open and honest in case there's other people that are in, whatever stage of life, but have lived some, some standard of life over and have been around long enough. And you've made some decisions. Like you said, not, nothing sinful. It's not like I caused this because I went and committed adultery or was unfaithful right. or did something wrong. These are just some things that happened. Uh, the economy happened. And then I made a couple of bad choices during that time that I wished I hadn't, but it's a lesson for me. My my story is uh, the reason I want to be honest about it is, hey, I'm still in the battle. I'm still here. I'm 58. I still have a good brain. I'm grateful that I have the ability to get up and go to work. And I say this a lot, but I, I but I have to convince myself of this. I say almost if somebody will ask me, so what do you, you know? What what's your plans for the future? Whatever. I've said this a bunch. Hey, whether I had five dollars in the bank or fifty million dollars in the bank. I would, even if I had 50 million to make, I would get up and want to do something productive at least till I'm 70 because I just feel like in today's day and age, we're not our parents' generation where we worked till 62 or 60. My dad retired at 58 as a school teacher, taught from 26 to 58. He, he retired at my age. And then he had a wonderful life sitting on the front porch in Snowflake with my mom playing with his grandkids. That's beautiful. He had a wonderful, beautiful life. But our generation is not that way. We're going to do something productive and meaningful and vibrant until we're at least 70. I think we're a different generation. I mean, love Trump or hate Trump, which I know, I, I, I know, Richard, we've had some good conversations on that over the time. But, but love him or hate him at age 70 with a bunch of money in the bank where he could have flown off into the sunset, he still chose to try to do something meaningful, whether you love him or hate him or whether you like what he's doing or not. I love that attitude of at least wanting to be productive. Now, his might be from a narcissistic sense of life or whatever, but I love that concept of still being productive. Maybe use the leaders of the church that are still, you know, productive in their I just don't like the concept of retiring. So I like that, I'm grateful. It? I'm grateful that, that my story, the what I want to get out of all my honesty of the mistakes I've made, what I want the listeners to know and what I want everybody to know about my life is I'm I'm grateful. I'm still in the battle. I'm still in the hunt. I'm still out I'm still out making a living and that's I'm proud of that and I'm grateful for that. And I'm still working through my vulnerability of just being satisfied with who I am and if I make it big again, great. If I never do, well, then fine. I, I have a very blessed life, and I'm no better or no worse off than anybody else. I, I, I have a wonderful life. And so I, I'm still working through it, and I'm trying not to get triggered by different things, and I'm trying every day to 
be humble and be grateful and be, uh, you know, just really appreciative of who I am and, 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 and how much I have been blessed. So it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a sad story. It's just a honest true, story. honest, <laughs> it's just, it's just some ups and downs and two or three small mistakes that cost me big financially. And that's, and I just have to live with that. And I just have to, that's my story to this day. And I just have to, there's a great saying, one of my favorite sayings that I found about a year ago, Richard, it says, nobody can go back and start a new beginning, but anybody can start today and create a new ending. And right now that's my mantra. I can't go back and create a new beginning, but I can start today and I can create a different ending. I can create whatever ending I want. My story hasn't been told all the way through yet. So that's my mantra from, from here on out. I love that. And I love the the message of that that points forward versus looks back. Two questions for you. Dawn is, yeah. you've got this wonderful wife, Dawn, and Phenomenal. she's been walking this road with you. Talk about the best things a spouse can do in this situation, because Dawn's seeing you just hurting and is walking with you. And um, oh. what, just give advice for spouses. Um, Oh my God. The things that Don has done that's been helpful for you. Wonderful question. I appreciate you asking that because that the story would not be uh, told completely without telling you. My wife is phenomenal. Uh, We've been married. We just August 5th hit 37 years. And uh, during this downtime, well, number one, when I wanted to go to California, she was like, let's do it. Let's do it. If this has been your dream, you want to go somewhere, you want to go try to live somewhere else besides Arizona, let's go. I'm all in. And when we lost everything and we came back, and, and dude, I, she was the one I was most not wanting to disappoint. I had given her, I felt like I had created this wonderful lifestyle for her. My wife grew up um, in Manchester, England. I met my wife on my mission. She was already a member of our faith. She was already a member of the church. Um, but she knew our mission president, Ellis Ivory, and after our mission, she moved to Utah to be a nanny, and we dated back and forth from Utah and got married about a year from my mission. But I knew my wife on my mission. She grew up in very humble circumstances, a little small home, maybe six or 700 square feet, just like most people in England, but she grew up in very humble circumstances. Good family, great family, but but working class, poor type, environment and I was attracted to that because I always hoped when I was first married anything that anything I did successful whatever we did we'd do it together because we both came from humble backgrounds but once you have it then once I knew I'd lost all of it I was so scared to go back and really tell her boy it's gone Dave it's it's kind of all gone we're starting over again Richard she was phenomenal she was like so what? Let's go to work. What are you going to do next? Let's go. Where can I help? I'll go get a job. What can I do to help? And don't worry about it. You're amazing. You'll be fine. You'll, you're, you've always provided for us. Don't, don't stress. You'll figure it out. What can I do to support you? And even after that, I got this job um, back with the real estate guys, and I had a few struggling months after that. And I, 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 the entire time, there was one time I just kind of had a little bit of breakdown one morning getting ready for work, and I tried to do something else. I was going to try to find a way to buy a company with a couple of guys, and it didn't work out. And I was kind of frustrated at that, and I kind of had a little bit of a mental breakdown. And, man, she was right there. And keep in mind, 
this is the wife that herself has openly struggled with anxiety and depression her whole life. She hates the word depression, but she struggled her whole life openly with uh, lots of anxiety, panic attacks, OCD symptoms, things like that. And so I had always felt like I had to be the strong one and I was always had to be there for her with her anxiety. But oh my gosh, when, when all this fell apart and we lost everything, not a not one ounce in the world did she ever make me feel at all bad. So my counsel, if you if you're a spouse and you have your significant other has has gone through some troubles or has made some mistakes that are not sinful but just some bad decisions, you just love them. You just gotta love them and believe in them. The fact that my wife has never once not one not one sentence that she ever said that's made me feel stupid or or bad that 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 we don't have what we used to have we we downsized again to the home that we're living in now it's the smallest home we've lived in forever it's a it's a little older home in mesa and we because we sold that one we sold this one house after we after we put the forty thousand down we were able to get the economy got better. We were able to get a little bit of equity. We bought an older home that we could decorate up. My, you would think my wife lives in Buckingham Palace. It's a small little 2,000 square foot home, and she invites all people over, and she gives people tours of the house as if we were in Buckingham Palace. I kid you not. She loves our little home, and she's so proud of it. And she like so she, not not one time has she ever made me feel bad. So it, it's just loving your spouse and just believing in them. She believes in me, and she even today, she, if I want to go do something, if I said, "Hey, I really want to try this," or "I want to do something else," she would go, "You're you're the best. If you if anybody can do it, you can do it. Go for it, babe. I'm right here with you. What can I do to support you? What I'm here. You want to do? If you want to keep doing what you're doing, I love what you're doing. How can I help?" She just, just believes in me. She just has always believed in me, and she's never, ever, ever made me feel stupid for any of the bad financial decisions I've made. That's a way to go, Don, and that doesn't surprise me with what I know about your wife. And one last question yeah. for you. Um, yeah. Great job, Don. What would you, this is 10 years this December away from that brutal moment in that Irvine condo, what would you say to your younger self? That's 10 years ago. If you could go back and talk to your despondent self, and this is you really talking to listeners that are despondent in just the darkest of dark moments, what would you say to yourself 10 years removed from that? Just trust in the Lord. Just, just trust in the Lord. Just be grateful for what you have. Look for your blessings, not for your mistakes. Spend as much as much as hard as it is in the despondent times to focus on the negative and the things that didn't work out. Just trust in the Lord and trust in the goodness of God and that He's there and that He loves you and He'll provide for you. And as long as you get up, just get up that next day and go to work. Get up and do whatever it takes to be happy and to improve your situation and to just be grateful and, and to know that God loves you, to know that there's a Savior there that you can, for those that are listening that are of the LDS faith, and even if you're not, if you believe in God and you believe in 
having a savior uh, that that died for you and paid the price for your sins and your mistakes and and just those feeling despondent that you can give all that pain you can give all of that pain over to your savior and you can let him have it and so to my despondent self when i'm there in that apartment i would just say trust in the lord just trust in the lord and know that it's all going to be okay that it's not about money it's not about um your current circumstances it's about having faith and it's about believing in god and it's about trusting him and that everything that happens in life at the very least gives you experience it gives you perspective it gives you wisdom and it'll all it'll all work out in the end that's a great segment um this has been just a great podcast. Uh, it fits with, this is the vulnerable podcast platform where people come on and vulnerably share their stories. And all of my podcast guests are heroes because they often talk about really difficult things. And if we do that in our culture and in our faith communities, we I think we're able better to minister and heal and help and be more sensitive to how people are feeling and I just, on behalf of all our listeners, Lou, thanks for being so honest. I know we have great common friends, the McDonald's, Eric and Liz McDonald, and yeah. I know there's so many people that love you and your dear wife, Dawn, and and just your great hearts, the leadership you've given to our church in Arizona, so many youth in particular that you've taught and loved and pointed them to the Savior. Um, so... Um, any just concluding thoughts before we sign off? No, I just really appreciate what you're doing, Richard. I've listened to not every podcast because <laughs> no I do have to can. go out work, and you <laughs> you got a couple hundred of them now. But I love what you're doing, and I, I and we're just one connected human family. And I think, especially in these times, like you say, we're 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 making this in August of 2020 when the world is such a scary place. Is why just with the LBGTQ community and with anybody that's suffering or does, feels marginalized or feels um, not loved or wanted, that's that the overwhelming need in our world today, Richard, is what you're trying to provide is let's just love each other. Let's just accept everybody. Let's listen to each other's story. Let's put down the facade. Nobody's perfect. Nobody has, nobody's getting through this life. Uh, without the love and support from other people. So let's let's love everybody. Let's love everybody of every background, of every creed, of every color. Let's don't judge. Let's just love each other. And uh, let's help each other get through this life um, knowing that somebody cares. The saddest thing to me would be if there's people out there that don't feel loved or don't feel cared for. And so that's, that's what you're trying to provide. And I love your message. And... Uh, that's 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 what I want to do the rest of my life is do whatever it takes to help other people feel loved and cared about. Know that everybody's story is important and everybody's everybody's got some ups and some downs and challenges. And so let's just let's just love each other. Let's trust in the Lord and let's let's take care of each other. That sounds like what you taught in England um, 30, 40 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Um, I, I learned on, from the best. You were uh, you were you were one of my uh, greatest mentors. You know that you yeah. were you were the AP when I was 
right there looking up to you and I can still remember some of your awesome talks and conferences that we had and boy what a great shared mission experience that was huh it's what a great, great time experience. to be in England it was a great time and it was great to serve with you and the good people of England and so yeah. thank you Lou Jarvis this has been a great podcast on behalf of all of our listeners this is Richard Osler and Lou Jarvis two old England return missionaries um <laughs> Signing up from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.